So again, please uh, turn with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians, where we will pick up in chapter 4. As we turn to God's word, let's turn to him once again in prayer and ask his blessing. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left your people alone, but you've given us your word and your spirit to guide us all the way home. Father, we acknowledge that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so, Father, would you be pleased to provide true encouragement today? so that we can indeed run the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Father, be pleased now to meet with your people, gathered eager to hear you speak to us through your word and by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think most of us here have heard the expression identity politics, identity politics. Politics. Now that refers to political positions based on the interests and perspectives of social groups with which people identify. And identity politics includes the ways in which people's politics are shaped by aspects of their identity through loosely correlated social organizations. And y'all have heard, if you listen to the radio, uh, read the newspaper, magazines, if you're just in there out and about, you, you've heard... Um, this expression, identity politics, and there are those who advocate that that's what's needed and those who say, no, identity politics is what is driving people apart. Well, Galatians, as we've been seeing, is most certainly a proclamation as well as defense of the gospel. While it is that, I think we'll begin to see more and more that it's also a proclamation and a defense of the identity of a Christian, the identity of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. There is an aspect that Paul is going to address identity politics here within society, people's identities as Christians. Now remember our study through Mark's gospel, it was also about an identity. Who is Jesus? And what did Jesus come to do? And how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? Well, here in Galatians, you see from the very title of the series, the gospel according to the Bible, an exposition of the letter to the Galatians. Here, we're looking at what is the gospel. But also, as I think we'll come to see more and more, we're also going to see who are you in light of the gospel. I um, go to quite a number of events where you have to wear name tags. And I like to, at our presbytery meetings, bring my own name tag. And in the military, I loved my camouflage uniform because it was sewn onto my uniform. And my other uniforms had the name tag. I, I liked that. I do not like the, the sticky name tags. How about you all? Because how long does the sticky name tag last? I mean, realistically. Five minutes, maybe the first hour. 
Um, if somebody could invent a, a, a hello, my name is um, a, a name badge that would stay on for the entire conference, for the entire event, I think there is a great future uh, for you in business. But at any rate, um, in Galatians, Paul is, among other things, um, presenting a name tag that will stick for life. Paul is going to help affix a name tag onto the Christian that will stick for life. It will not fall off. In the verses that will be our focus today, we will see that Paul wants his reader, both then in the first century and now, to know two things about their identity. Once you were a slave, but now you are a son. As a result of faith in Jesus Christ, you have moved, or more correctly, you have been moved from slavery to sonship. Remember again, as we've looked at Mark's gospel and Galatians, Jesus and the good news about who he is and what he came to do, that is, the gospel cannot be separated. In our series in Galatians, we are addressing the ignorance and confusion when it comes to the gospel. And by God's grace, our ignorance is going to be lessened and our confusion is going to be reduced. Now, in the midst of confusion and ignorance, then and now, Galatians will provide clarity on the gospel. And as I believe we will begin to see more and more clarity of who we are in Christ. Because we're beginning again uh, after a several week break, I need to provide a little bit of background as way of reminder. Remember, Paul is preaching the gospel. He's planting churches all around the Mediterranean world, and he's continuing to support and oversee these new churches through his letters. He really does have a letter writing ministry. You think it's not important to write letters, emails, texts to people? My friends, never underestimate the power of the written word. Never underestimate the power of your spoken word as a word of encouragement. So Paul is writing this letter in the mid-first century, around 50 AD, to a group of churches in Galatia, part of present-day Turkey, to address, in particular, a sudden crisis. Because some Jewish Christian missionaries, later they'll be called Judaizers, We're teaching that Christians must not only believe in Jesus, but also must follow and obey Jewish traditions and laws. Otherwise, they would not be accepted by God. Now, Paul recognized that this was a threat to the truth of the gospel. Paul recognized that it was a clear and present danger because the danger was present in the the subtle teaching. Because these teachers were not saying that faith in Jesus Christ was not necessary. Rather, they were saying that faith in Jesus Christ was not enough. Behind the visible divisions and disunity in the churches that we saw as Paul addressed, especially in his interaction with Peter, you'll see that behind what was visible in terms of a disunity was a theological issue. There was confusion about the nature of the gospel. And in his letter, Paul proclaims and defends the truth of the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Now, remember what the theme of Galatians is? 
In a word, it's faith. And in three words, it's justification by faith. We see that three times in chapter 2, verse 16, where he says this, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. As you may recall, this letter had a tremendous influence in the life of an early reformer, Martin Luther in Germany, who in the 1500s discovered as people before him and after him to this day discovered that Christianity was not about what he had to do for God, but rather what God had done for him in Christ. And about the letter to the Galatians, he wrote, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. I have betrothed myself to it. It is my wife. And in his preface to his commentary, Luther says this, words to the effect, For there is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness. There is no other alternative to Christian righteousness but works righteousness. If you do not build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your own work. And we will see that as Galatians continues to unfold. Here, Luther also says this, We should know this article, that is justification by faith, well, teach it to others and beat it into their heads continually. And by God's grace, our series will gently at times and maybe strongly at times beat this doctrine into our heads. We will see running throughout Galatians the biblical teaching about salvation that characterized the work of the reformers, that being justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, and all for God's glory alone. And why is this such a big deal? I mean, are we just here to to get a a, a theological academic um, hit today? What's the big deal? Well, first of all, understanding this truth of Scripture is honoring to God because it takes God at His Word. And secondly, if we're saved by faith in Jesus, not by what we do, then we are freed up to love God and our neighbor more and more as Paul will direct our attention in the latter chapters of Galatians. Recall the rough outline of this letter. It's a defense of the gospel. Six chapters, 149 verses. It can be read in 15 minutes quickly. The first two chapters are an autobiography. Paul defends his ministry, his apostleship. And then the next two chapters, chapters 3 and 4, where we're at today, is Paul's theological defense of the gospel message. It's a theological defense. Section And then finally, there's ethics in the last two chapters, chapters 5 and 6. The practical application of the gospel message to his readers' lives. And we will see that through the lens, in particular, of Christian liberty. Indeed, as one commentator has said in looking at Galatians, what God has done, we see in chapters 1 and 2, teaches us what we should believe. We see that in chapters 3 and 4. And then, how we should live in chapters 5 and 6. 
Well, in the previous three weeks, we looked at the relationship between the law and the promise. You may recall in chapter 3, verses 15 to 18, the priority of the promise. We saw what the law cannot do. God's promises to Abraham were made. They were kept unchanged and they were ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And thus, all those united to Christ by faith receive what was promised. Because the promise has priority over and precedes the law, the law cannot do away with the promise. And then next, we looked at verses 19 through 24 of chapter 3, the purpose of the law. There we saw what the law can do and indeed does do. The law was added, Paul says, to reveal and expose sin. The law was not contrary to the promises of God. The law kept us in prison, as it were, under guard and under supervision, under the teaching of a tutor. For what purpose? He says this in verse 24, in order that we might be justified by faith. We ended noting that salvation in Christ does not rest on a law that we will inevitably break, but rather our salvation in Christ rests on a promise that God cannot break. And the last time we were together here in Galatians, we looked at verses 25 through 29, the people of faith in the promise. These last four verses of Galatians 3, we saw, are full of Jesus Christ. And as a result of being united to Christ by faith, we have three distinct relationships. Now that faith has come, Paul has shown us the church in Galatia, his readers then and now, who they are, who we are in three relationships, to God, to one another, and to history. So that catches us up to where we're at today. Join with me as I read, and I'm actually going to start in verse 23 of chapter 3 and continue through verse 7 of chapter 4. Paul writes, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you are a son, then an heir through God. Notice Paul starts off in verse 1, I mean. And in verse 3, he will say, in the same way. Paul will go on now to expand on what he has already said as he rehearses the same history of being under law and then in Christ. Now through an illustration of a young child who is the heir of a great estate. Paul is going to remind all of us then and now who we once were and who we now are through the person and work of Christ. Our first point is this, man or the human's condition under the law. It's verses 1 through 3, man's condition under law. In a word, man is a slave. There are quite a few children here in the church. And what do we expect, really, of children? What do we expect? Don't, you know, behavior, this, that, the other, seeing, not heard, no. What do we expect of children? That they, what? Grow up. They grow up. Children are not to stay where they are. They are to mature. They are to grow up. And, and Paul is going to emphasize that this child that's going to grow up is first of all an heir. An heir. But when they're a child, they're like a slave. This, this wealth that they have is already possessed by promise. But it's not yet possessed in experience. They, they are going to grow. It's going to happen sometime later. He had earlier said prison wardens and pedagogues control God's people as it were until they come to Christ. And now they are under guardians and managers who are taking care of the estate. They're the trustees of the estate until the heir grows up. So right now the heir is still like a slave. Indeed, the child is an heir and the child is also a slave. Paul is going to say when Children were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, this is very difficult to translate. And as such, it is really difficult to interpret what is going on when Paul says um, uh, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Well, if you look over to verse 8 where he says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that by nature are not God's. I think... He's not so much talking about this elementary ABC stuff as he's talking about being just enslaved in the midst of a fallen world. You're, you're uh, all Jew and Gentile, as he points out clearly in Romans, are sinners and are in need of salvation by Jesus. Regardless of, of the point, if it's some say it's kind of this ABCs for the Jews or just this uh, Satan's control of Gentiles in a sinful and fallen world. Well, regardless, the point is here that God's people needed to grow up. Because Paul is here describing the human condition under law. 
He expands it elsewhere. Go to Romans and you'll see it. But here he's addressing a particular issue with the Galatians. And he defends the gospel and the implications of the gospel against false teaching. Now he turns to God's decisive action in Jesus Christ. So we move from man's condition under law to now God's action through Christ. Verses 4 through 6. Whenever you see the word but in Scripture... Stop. Start thinking. Ask yourself what has come before and pay attention to what comes after. I mean, think about the conversations we have. Uh, you're telling a story to a friend, you know. Um, uh, we, we ran out of gas, right? We were stranded on the side of the road. And you're telling the story and people are identifying with it. And then what do you say? But. But then... The triple A truck came, just came right by us, and we flagged him down. Or, or the friend who was headed to the same place I was saw us. The but changes the direction. And here the change in direction is because of God's action through Christ. But it changes everything. Everything. And Paul here will outline six teachings that the coming of Christ Brings. Look with me. Let me read this again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. First of all, timing. The fullness of time. Jesus came. Jesus was sent. God became flesh and dwelt among us when the Roman Empire had made it possible for there to be safe transport all over the Mediterranean world and beyond. The fullness of time also can be seen in looking at the Greek culture and language that made the spread of the news about Jesus be able to go far and wide. The Gentiles at this time were tired of serving old pagan gods. The Jews were weary of being held prisoner by the law they had tried and failed to obey. Just think about Simeon and Anna as we read in the first few chapters of Luke, waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for that long-expected um, uh, Savior to come. Here is the turning point from expectation to fulfillment. Remember in Mark's Gospel, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Paul is saying something similar, but when the fullness of time had come, Jesus announces that the time was fulfilled. He was here. He was on the scene I'm reminded of something my mother-in-law says. God is not in a hurry. God is not late. He's always right on time. Friends, are you struggling with that now? Are you wanting God to hurry up? Are you fearing that He is late to provide what you need? Look at just the right time, Paul will say, when we were still sinners, when we were powerless. 
Christ died for us. The work of God through Christ is always right on time. We used to have to know when I was the uh, uh, gunnery officer, the time on target. The time on target here is perfect. And notice it's an origin. Not just the timing, but the origin. God the Father sent. But when God sent forth His Son, Jesus existed before He was born. Here's an aspect of His divine nature. And then the manner. God sent forth His Son. Again, true eternal deity. Here's the story, not from rags to riches, but from riches to rags. He's born of woman. True humanity. True deity. True humanity. Luther says this, Christianity does not begin at the top as all other religions do. It begins at the bottom. God in the flesh. A helpless babe as we sang during Advent. Now the Lord of history. So there's the timing, the origin, the manner. And notice the condition. Born under the law. Jesus was born under obligation of the law in minute detail to be the representative of His people. Jesus was not only under the law's demands, do this and live, He was also under its condemnation. If you fail to do this, you will die. The condition of Jesus' coming was perfect obedience. And now Paul will show us two purposes for His coming. He was born of woman, born under the law. Why? First, to redeem those who were under the law. The first purpose is to redeem. His death is not just a rescue, but a redemption. He's doing this through His divinity, through His humanity, through His righteousness. Jesus could redeem us from the penalty of the law because He kept it perfectly. Paul is going to go on to talk about the fact that the incarnation cannot save without also the crucifixion. So the first element of this twofold purpose is to redeem. But also notice as it continues, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Not just an atoning purpose, but also an adoptive purpose as well. Not just to redeem, to buy back, but also to make slaves into sons. Once Jesus had gained our freedom, He gathered us into His family. It went beyond mere redemption to adoption. Again, turning slaves into sons. So here in this twofold purpose, you see Christ... The redemption and the adoption. Because you see, Paul is talking about Jesus is taking from us the curse which we deserve. He's taking from us the curse which we deserve. Jesus is demonstrating God's mercy. But also Jesus is going to demonstrate God's grace in giving us the blessing that He deserved. Because our adoption as sons is many ways going to be patterned after Jesus' only own relationship with His Father. Because Jesus takes the curse from us and gives the blessing to us, we get both pardon and reward. 
In other words, we not only get out of prison, off of death row, which should be good enough, right? You guys have seen the, um, the interviews of the person falsely accused and was finally exonerated, and they've missed like 21 years of their life, and they're asked, well, what are you going to do now? And it, It's not just we were falsely accused, we were rightly accused. We were guilty, but we've been freed, and we're off death row, but not only that, we also amazingly get a medal of honor, as it were, for what someone else did. Amazing. You get off of death row, you're out of prison, and the next thing you know, you're in the White House East Room receiving, as it were, the Congressional Medal of Honor because of somebody else's work. You get both pardon and reward. Now, man's condition under the law has been decisively changed by God's action. And Paul will, will now summarize his teaching in a simple declaration of man's condition in Christ. It's verse 7. Man's condition in Christ is a son. His condition under the law was a slave. Now, in a word, the Christian is no longer a slave, but a son and an heir. Now, we could spend the rest of the day talking about the privileges of sonship. But among many, let's just mention two for the moment. Think about that, going from a slave to a son. There is now an intimacy of relationship. There is an assurance and a security in God's love for us. And as we, as we declare together in the call to worship, we have access now to God. Through the work of Christ. We often pray from Hebrews that we, because of the work of Jesus, can, can go to the throne of grace with confidence. There's an intimacy of the relationship now. We have access to God in prayer. But also, there's not just the intimacy of the relationship. There's the authority of the possession. We have confidence. We have boldness. As a son, we, we no longer walk around in fear of anyone or anything other than a reverential fear of God. Why? Why? Because God owns the whole place. And we are His sons and daughters and we are heirs. Think about that for a moment. God, you remember the song, He's got the whole world in His hands? He's got your life in His hands. He's got this church in His hands. He's got your family in His hands. He possesses it all. You're no longer a slave, subject to fear. You are a son. You are a child of the one who owns the whole place. And notice how he ends. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Through God. All of this is through God. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians 5, 16, or 17 and 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God. As if we needed a reminder. All this is from God. All this is through God. Not through our own merit, 
what we think we deserve, not by our own effort, what we think we've done, but only through His initiative and the power of His grace. He, that is God the Father, sent the Son to die for us. And He sent His Spirit to live in us. You cannot get away from Trinitarian theology. Here it is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The work of the Son is done externally to us. The work of the Spirit is done internally to us. The subjective experience of the Spirit by which we can cry, Abba, Father. That subjective experience of the Spirit is based on the objective truth of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not the other way around. Through the purpose and power of God, we receive a change of status and a change of our actual experience. Well, let's wrap up with just a few words about adoption, which in the words of J.I. Packer in Knowing God and quoted on page 5 of the bulletin is, quote, the highest privilege that the gospel offers. I hope you'll take time to read that whole quote. It's an amazing quote. Indeed, in the past decade or so, there's been a resurgence of theological writing about adoption as one of the benefits that those who are effectually called to faith in Christ receive. Justified, adopted, and sanctified. In his book, Children of the Living God, Sinclair Ferguson writes this, The notion that we are children of God, His own sons and daughters, is the mainspring of Christian living. Our sonship to God is the apex of creation and the goal of redemption. Think about that. The mainspring. What gets you out of bed in the morning? The alarm? Got to be at school? Got to be at work? How about this? I'm a, an adopted child of the King. I'm a son and, or daughter of the living and true God. How about that? A recent commentary on Galatians, the commentator says this, If we continue to serve God out of fear or duty, however, we show that we do not understand what Christ has done on our behalf. Christianity is not bondage, but freedom. For Christ has brought us From slavery to sonship. Christ has brought us out of slavery and into the family relationship. And finally, from a much earlier series of sermons based on the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Puritan Thomas Watson, who lived from 1620 to 1686, wrote this in his book entitled, A Body of Divinity. He wrote this, We have enough in us to move God to correct us, but nothing to move Him to adopt us. Therefore, exalt free grace. Begin the work of angels here. Bless Him with your praises, who hath blessed you in making you His sons and daughters. And so some of you were going to ask me, well, Pastor, what's the application of this? You know, what are the five things I can do this week to apply this passage? Well, the application is amazingly brief and simple, but it's the task of a lifetime. You want to know what we are to do with this truth? 
Here's what we are to do. Worship God. Glorify and enjoy Him forever. You want to apply the truth, in, the truth that we are children of the living and true God? Fall down on your face in worship and praise. There is nothing lovely in us that caused God to rescue us. Amazing love. How can it be that, oh my God, it found out me. It's the love that demands what? Our life, our soul, our all. Back to the kind of name tag that doesn't fall off. Hello. In the words of the song, my name is not regret, my name is not defeat, my name is not slave, rather my name is child of the one true king. Friends, for those of you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, for those of you that are not looking inward but outward to the work of another in your place and on your behalf, you are no longer a slave. You are a son, you are a daughter of the true and living God. Rejoice, I say again, rejoice. Let's pray. Oh Father, we confess that we enjoy slavery often because we think sonship could somehow be worse. Oh Father, would you destroy that wrong thinking in us. Help us to see the work of Jesus in our place and on our behalf that indeed has brought us out of slavery and has made us sons. Heirs of the great promises, the great estate that we know now in part and that one day we will know in full. Oh, Father, help us as a church, help us as families and individuals to encourage one another to, to live out the status of being adopted by God. True sons and daughters of the one true King. Father, we thank you for the gift and grace of being your adopted children. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.